The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of No Self. And the looking glass is a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a a period of years during my childhood and then on through adolescence and into my teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing looking at looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror. Endlessly. It was kind of an amazing dream. I was fascinated with it at times. Intrigued with it at times. And if I thought about it very much... I would begin to feel uh, quite perplexed. But mostly, I was really just very, very interested in this dream. Interested enough, in fact, that it's the only dream that I really clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life beginning when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school um, about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home when I began to explore the teachings of the Buddha. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it might be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this truth is so basic, so simple, and that even with just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept, uh, of an idea, of belief that separates us from 
the reality of no self or not self. Many of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience, and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes, fears, and various beliefs. To relinquish the attachment, stepping through the veil asks us to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's really important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, simply, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. What we call our self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, see, and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's very readily available to know experientially is the body as a process made up of many, many elements. The earth element with its characteristics that can be known very directly experientially through our practice, the characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The fire element with its characteristics that we know directly experientially. Coldness and heat. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements, these 
elements and their characteristics, the elemental characteristics being in constant flux in and of themselves and in constant flux in relationship to each other. Our so-called self as our body or my body is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So, in truth, there's nothing to cling to, nothing to attach to. And as we come to know this to whatever degree, essentially we find out or we realize, little by little, that all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at our self and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see ourself more accurately. Begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached to them, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple, but certainly not necessarily very easy. But it is really very simple. We're sitting here in retreat, or we're sitting at our desk at work, or sitting at home on the couch. Pleasant is just merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. And as Ajahn Chah said, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there is no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real, no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. Chinese sage Nan Shin said, 
by not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing interpretation, investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see. So, for instance, we think of in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become, how we know self, much or most of the time. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, said these words about humility, and these are her words. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps 
to the last breath, I hope, she said. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then, really, that the observer, the so-called self, and what's being observed, what's being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's then merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing, no duality as it's sometimes spoken of, no two, just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sense store experiences, feelings, mind states, perceptions, as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thinking or deeply rooted egocentric thought and habits and self-centered inclinations be loosened, be reduced, be relinquished, and eventually, finally, be eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to no self or come to no self or not self or no self and then for just a moment or two and eventually finally it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine, that's based in the fear of losing something. It's eventually not that anymore. And for a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And some words from the Buddha that Some of you may have heard many times. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, uh, a burden, to carry our self around. This body, 
the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes, all of the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts and feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel hauling around all the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up by it or caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. And life still happens. We make use of things in the world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing and living life, and in fact, living life much more freshly and fully in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher in our life here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. A poem by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield, uh, who speaks about this in her wonderfully poetic way. She calls this poem, Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant, even the towels, for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other act of shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believe it possible, I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where it appears in us, the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours 
that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other. That even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So, for instance, do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensation therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, is that me? That's me, maybe. (laughs) We think sometimes. Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. So we might think, okay, I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind, certainly my conscious mind is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's quite fair to say that one of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn, So just for a moment now, close your eyes for a moment and look into your own mind, heart-mind, for just a moment. Maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as Pawak Sayadaw says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away moment by moment, like every other conditional phenomena. It too is dependent on contact with some object coming through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises in relationship to the object. It too is dependent 
on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind, mind consciousness, mind phenomena consciousness. In some words uh, from the Buddha, two very short suttas from the Samyutta Nikaya. And they're both a conversational uh, uh, expression. And the Buddha is sitting with one of the devas. One of the devas is sitting with the Buddha, and they're having a conversation. And the deva says to the Buddha, What produces a person? What does he or she have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is his or her greatest fear? From what is she or he not yet freed? What determines her or his destiny? And the Buddha responds to the deva, Craving is what produces a person. Her or his mind is what runs around. A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. She or he is not free from suffering. Karma or kama determines his or her destiny. Now, each of these suttas, of course, could produce a whole Dharma talk, but we're not going to do that. So you just take them in and however they gestate and um, develop inside you, that's your own Dharma talk this evening about these. The second short conversation is uh, between the Buddha and his um, chief disciple, Ananda. And Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, the title, there's a title for this sutta, it's called Empty is the World. And the Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it is said, Empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, Empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, Empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, and then the Buddha goes on through each of the sense sense door consciousness in this way, and he ends with mind consciousness. Mind consciousness, consciousness and whatever feeling arises with mind consciousness as the condition whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful feeling. That, too, is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda, it is Ananda, because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that, is, that it is said, empty is the world. 
And moving a little bit along historically, <clears throat> another um, Dhamma mirror from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. And these are his words. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness with myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. And continuing to move along, historically, a wonderfully simple poem by a poet who is still alive, contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full, sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last uh, part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if uh, an image doesn't come easily for you, please don't struggle with it. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning now with closing your eyes, relaxing, and visualizing in, or in some way sensing, an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant, crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net. While at the same time, its 
image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, this felt sense, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image or let the felt sense go, just let it dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self, no-self. This is the grounding, uh, or this is the ground of understanding no-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find that more and more often you act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says interconnectedness or interbeing. There is no separate, no isolated, independent you, no separate me. And from uh, 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva, something I may have read in the compassion talk that I gave last week, I'm not sure, but it, it's good to hear it many times. Shanti Deva's words, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement 
or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. And again, closing your eyes and relaxing. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, let the heart rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud, but just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all of the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And now let the image or the felt sense just fade away. Let it be and let it fade away, dissolve. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not 
fixating any edges to it. Who's aware? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back, so to say, and open up, and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility. We begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in, and we keep looking, Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or in the world around us to render us fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back, into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clear, clearer and clearer and more open and more all-encompassing, more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static something or some solid rendition of I, some solid rendition of me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, 
me, mine, and other. We're residing somewhere next door to reality, ultimate reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems, really. The greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. And in relationship to this, I'd like to share a a story, a true story. Uh, A friend of mine uh, was suffering with this core loneliness, and uh, he decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. With the advice of some friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So my friend arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage, all of different sizes and different shapes and different colors, and he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and he got another huge load of baggage and he piled the second load on top of the first load. He said the secretary looked at him and kind of, with that look, you know, like, hmm. (laughs) And he told me and he told the therapist uh, that he had to go around collecting baggage from friends and family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he took, of course, he took all of his baggage in there with him and piled it all up between him and the therapist. And at some point during this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, her great wisdom, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he had brought with him. And so he did this, and he found that there was nothing inside any of it. A very wise therapist. <laughs> and of course, some of you are therapists and some of us have been to therapy and, or we've heard stories about it, but we certainly know that not every client, it's not every client you can do this with. <laughs> but this man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief. Like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and to understand the load and its nature, and then just simply set it down. There's a, an old, ancient 
teaching about this that I uh, really like. Um, it's a story of a woman who had practiced for many years and had some very powerful and expansive and even some illuminating experiences. But still, she really hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and um, feeling that there wasn't much time left. And so she so, so wanted a, a freedom in this lifetime. And so she decided to take herself uh, up to the top of the mountain to uh, see the wise one uh, who she had heard was um, able to turn the mind, to turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as he passed the woman and Uh, the woman stopped and she called out to him and she said, uh, he stopped, or she called out to him and he stopped and he turned around towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on top of the mountain. And she explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted to, to really understand ultimate wisdom so that she would be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. She told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one at the uh, top of the mountain might be the one to be able to reveal this to her. Well, the old man uh, stood still and briefly looked at the woman And then slowly, taking his time, he turned around very slowly and continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still, and then slowly turning around again towards the woman. And then he very slowly and very carefully took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep exploring keep living life and seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life so much more freshly and fully, right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, and is the relative aspect of understanding no-self. This is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world.
I'd like to close the talk this evening with uh, two teachings from the Buddha, short teachings from the Buddha, from the, um, a collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of attachment to sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second uh, teaching from the Buddha, this is a teaching he gave to a a disciple of his called Bahia. And this is him speaking to Bahia. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.